0: we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We'll um, read that in connection with Lord's Day 39 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which uses Ephesians 5 as a proof text for submitting ourselves with proper obedience to those in authority. It's on page um, 891 in the back of your hymnals where we will read question 104 together And There it asks, what is God's will for you in the fifth commandment? That I show honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and all those in authority over me, submit myself with proper obedience to all their good teaching and discipline and also that I be patient with their failings for by their hand God wills to rule us. Well, beloved, most of you are familiar with the idea that um, fathers and mothers in the fifth commandment is broader than just moms and dads, but, but those are, are categories of those in authority. That's, that's why our catechism goes on to say, and all of those in authority over me. And if you still have that open there, if you look at the, the proof texts there for question 104, it, it includes uh, Romans 13 and governing authorities Ephesians chapter 6, with slaves and masters, Ephesians 5, on, on husbands and wives, all much broader than, than just parents and children. And, and so what I'd like to do before we, we look at parents and children next time is, is to look this morning at Ephesians 5 and what it has to say about authority in the home, um, first of all, in marriage. We live in an egalitarian age that, that wants to erase all distinctions in role, that It hates the word submission, and so it's good to be reminded from time to time just what it is that God calls us to in our various roles, both for those who are called to lead and for those who are called to submit. As we um, do that, I thought about reading also from the Westminster Larger Catechism on uh, page 956 in the back of your hymnals. I won't read all of the questions there on the fifth commandment, but I do just want to point out a couple of things uh, from them. You can turn there if you'd like or, or write that down for later. But there in question 124, it, it um, speaks of, of what is meant by, by father and mother and says what's meant there is all superiors who God places over us, whether in the family or in the church or in the commonwealth. And then it, it goes on in question 125, to speak of how those God puts in places of authority also have obligations themselves. They are to show love and tenderness to those who God places them over. In questions 129 and 130, it speaks of how they are to love, pray for, and bless them and are not to seek their own glory, profit, pleasure, or ease. Those in positions of authority not to use the authority granted to them by God for their own glory, profit, pleasure, or ease. The the Westminster Larger Catechism makes explicit what is more implicit in ours that there is a duty in the fifth commandment not only for inferiors, those who are called to, to submit themselves, but there's also a duty for those they're called to submit to superiors, as the, the, the catechism calls them, the, the larger catechism. There's not suggesting that there is anything inherently superior or inferior in either, but in, in terms of their relation to one another, one is called to submit, and one is called by God's ordinance to lead. And so as we think about marriage, consider first the duties of those who are called to submit, as that's where Paul begins In Ephesians 5, at verse 22, where he speaks of of two main duties. Uh, Wives are to submit to their husbands, and they are to respect them. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then, Down in verse 33, after speaking to the husbands, he sort of comes back to his summary to both parties and says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So two main duties. First, to submit. This idea is introduced back in verse 21 where uh, Paul has has just been speaking of the the spirit-filled and thankful Christian life where he tells all of us not to be drunk with wine but rather to be filled with with the Holy Spirit and to be thankful. And and, and so in verse 21, as he he sort of fills that out, we see that part of what it looks like to live this spirit-filled and thankful Christian life is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then what follows after that, Paul starts to apply this in the various situations. And I think it's important that we understand that the relationship here, that there would be some mentioned we live in in a more egalitarian sort of age and so sometimes even in the church as there are attempts maybe to to modify or or undermine some of these clear commands, some would say, well, verse 21 says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, therefore all of us have to submit to each other and husbands also have to submit to their wives. So that's, that's not the logic of what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5. Rather, he's giving a general command in verse 21 about the duty that each of us have to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. And now in 522 through 6, 9, he applies that in all of these various situations in marriage and in parenting and with bond servants and masters or, or in our context in, in the workplace. So he gives this general command and now in what follows, he starts to apply that to the, the various situations. And each of these, the one party, is to yield to the other in love. Remember verse 21, ultimately out of reverence for Christ. recognize that, that God has designed there to be order in, in the various relationships, and so he appoints leaders. And this is not at all to suggest that there is, is some kind of, of superiority in the one, but, but because God in his wisdom has put a basic order into these spheres to protect us from chaos to protect us from what we see in the book of Judges where each man is doing what is right in his own eyes because there was no one, no king in Israel, that is actually the, the language that he uses, but, but no, no authority. Everyone just doing what is right in their own eyes. And so God says in the home, wives, I want you to be subject to your husbands. He's, he's the leader. He's the God-appointed one that you are to defer to in love, letting him lead while you follow. He is to be the natural leader. There is disagreement. He is, is to be the one to whom you defer. As in athletics, there is a coach or a captain to whom others defer, so you are to yield to him. As our catechism says, to submit yourself with proper obedience to his good teaching. That's the calling that God places on the wife, not to be the leader or the chief decision maker, but as God first said of Eve, to be the helper. As he says of Sarah in First Peter 3, to adorn herself not with a, a bossy and domineering spirit, but a gentle and quiet spirit. Letting him lead and humbly following. That's, that's the calling of the Christian wife, to submit to her own husband as to the Lord. And notice that it says to her own husband. It doesn't say to every husband or to every man, but it says her own husband. And she submits to him as to the Lord, which connects this horizontal um, neighbor love with a a vertical love toward God by reminding us that that your submission in this way is ultimately submission to God. It's out of reverence for Christ, verse 21. Meaning the wife's submission to her husband is is part of her obedience to God. Chad Van Dixhorn, in his helpful little book, The The Gospel-Shaped Marriage, uh, along with his, his wife Emily uh, says in submitting to her husband she is submitting to the one who delegated some authority in the home to him, namely God. By by submitting to him she is submitting to Christ. As Calvin said, she cannot obey Christ without yielding proper obedience to him, who she submits to as to the Lord. Which is also to say that that her her submission to him, which is part of her submission to Christ, also in some ways mirrors that obedience and humble submission that the church owes to Christ. Again, Van Dixhorn says that the same attitude that that goes into giving oneself to Christ should go into giving oneself to Christ. To your husband. It is God's perfect plan for women to give themselves to their imperfect husbands in a way that echoes the creative, energetic, committed service that they give to their perfect Savior. The wife's submission to her husband is as to the Lord, and that it's it's part of her obedience to God, but also in that it reflects and mirrors the church's humble submission to her head and savior. That's the point that Paul makes in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The the wife's submission to her husband is both an extension of and reflection of her love for Christ. Her submission to her, her head and king. Which which is total. As in, she doesn't just submit to Christ in, in some things, but verse 24, in everything. So with the husband. To quote Van Dixhorn just, just once more, it's it's sometimes the case that, that people think submission simply means to to agree or 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 to get along. I've, I've heard people define it as as following my husband when he's right. As if I, I don't have to and I don't agree with him. But if that were so, Van Dixhorn says that then following wouldn't be called submission, but it would be called agreement. But the command is not agree with your husband, it's it's Submit to him. In fact, it's precisely when, when you disagree with him that this, this command takes on flesh. For if submit to him only meant when you agree with him, it would be emptied of its meaning. And this is not at all to say that there can't be a conversation. This is not to say that there, there can't be even good faith debate between husband and, and wife, what, what um, Keller calls loving contention with affection. But if the one who is called to lead is, is not convinced and leads you in a decision that you still think unwise but not sinful, then your calling is to let him make that unwise decision and trust God to work it for good, uh, perhaps even making you more like Christ through suffering because of his poor decision. Or To submit to your husband even when you disagree, being patient with his failings for by his hand. God wills to lead you. Of course, if he calls you to sin, or if he is harming you, you're, you're not to obey him or aid him. You may even even need to, to love him and, and help him by getting the, the civil or church authorities involved. But if we're simply talking about a decision that you're not sure is wise or are not totally sure you agree with it, then your calling is to yield to him and, and respect him. Lord's Day 39, to show honor, love, and faithfulness to him. Verse 33, to respect him. Which means the, the submission you are called to involves not only your, your actions, but perhaps principally the, the attitude with which you carry them out. Paul is talking about a submission that is rendered voluntarily from the heart. As George Knight says, that the heart's attitude of grateful acceptance of the role God gives you and the determination to fulfill it with all graciousness. That's what Paul is calling the wife to, a humble, gentle, loving disposition of deference out of reverence for Christ and in obedience to him. In the same way that the church is called to submit herself to Christ, who is her head, as Paul says in verses 23 and 24. And he, he then goes on to develop that in verses 25 to 32, which I want to get to in, in just a moment. But, but before we, we do, um, it's not only the husband who has the privilege of, of picturing the, the um, actions of Jesus Christ in, in this relationship. It's interesting, as you look over in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 3, 7 or so, is this, this whole section that kind of mirrors uh, Ephesians, where it talks about the, the various um, roles, submitting to, to governing authorities, submitting to, to slaves and masters, submission in, in marriage. And it's interesting, in First uh, Peter 3, 1-6, the instructions given to the wife regarding her submission flow right out of this, this indicative statement in First Peter 2, 22-25 about the humble submission of Christ. And so this calling to to submission, this calling to humility, this this calling to to, uh, submit is is not a call to weakness, but this is what Christ himself has done. And so not only, as we'll talk about in a minute, does the husband have the privilege of of picturing the the loving, sacrificial, servant-hearted leadership of Christ, our head, in in the marriage, but also the wife has an opportunity and and privilege of picturing in her humble submission the, the very character of Christ. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, 4, when it speaks of that um, gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious, the reason why it's so precious in his sight is because that's the exact same language that's used to describe Christ, who is gentle and lowly in heart. And, and so don't mistake this as, as some sort of, some sort of um, call to, to just sort of lay down and submit to this, this uh, domineering headship in a way that, that is all weakness and, and doesn't at all reflect the glories of Christ, both parties have the privilege of picturing the gospel. Now in verses 25 to 32 then, Paul uh, speaks specifically about how the husband in his role as head of, of the home, as, as the husband who leads the wife, has the, the privilege of, of picturing the Christ, Christ's tender love for the church. So that's what we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about and it's, it is interesting. We live in a culture that perhaps has a hard time with this first couple of verses about submission but um, over twice as, as much time here is spent speaking to the husbands about the way uh, that they are to relate to their wives or you can think also about first. Peter chapter three, where after this call to submission for the wives, First Peter three seven speaks to the husband about uh, living with his wife in an understanding way and showing her honor and recognizing that she is a co-heir of the grace of life. So we need to keep those things in mind. But now, as we think about the husband. We said that the fifth commandment has obligations both for inferiors and superiors, those who are called to submit and those who they're called to submit to. And so um, Paul in, in Ephesians 5, 25 to 32 spends the rest of his time on, on the husbands. And this is not only true in this relationship, but as you look ahead and you think about um, children and parents or slaves and masters, in each of these, there's an emphasis on, on gracious um, Humble, loving behavior, not not exasperating your children, not provoking them to anger, but bringing them up positively in the nurture and admonition of Christ. Both for husbands, fathers, and masters, all throughout this section, Paul emphasizes that they will be accountable to God for how they lead. Now for husbands specifically, their model is the loving, sacrificial, servant-hearted leadership of Christ himself. So let's look at at the various obligations that the husband has toward his wife. The, The first and primary one is that he is to love her. Did you notice as we were reading how many times Paul says this? Verse 25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28 Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then again, in verse 33, as he's summarizing all of it, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Just as, as submit might be the, the word that, that characterizes the wife's duty in verses 22 to 24. So love is the word that characterizes the husband's. It, it's specifically a, a sacrificial love. There's 25 patterned after the love that took Christ to the cross. As we'll sing a little bit later, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. That's the model, the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of Christ, what Stott calls Calvary love. So husbands, as God calls you to lead, he calls you to do so in the same way that Christ does. Not thinking first of himself, As we read earlier, or as I I pointed out from the larger catechism, not using the authority that's given to you to maximize your own glory, profit, pleasure, and ease, but giving yourself up for the good of the other, not ruling as a tyrant, but wearing a crown of thorns and dying to self. C.S. Lewis said the, the headship of the husband is not expressed in husbands doing whatever they want but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose husband or whose wife receives most and, and gives least and is least lovable. The crown given to the husband is a crown of thorns. And, and the real danger is not that husbands will grasp this crown too eagerly, but that they will let their wives wear it. He's saying, yours is the calling to minimize her suffering by maximizing yours, to lay down your life in service to your bride, even as Christ did all the way to the cross, wearing not a crown of glory, but a crown of thorns. Is that how you think about your authority? using it as Jesus says in the Gospels, not not to lord it over as the Gentiles do, but like the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. That's how Christ the King used his. And not just loving her all the way to the cross, verse 25, but, but loving her, verse 28, is very part of himself. He says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. Paul is here reminding us of that glorious mystery that the two have now become one. And so to mistreat or neglect your wife, according to verse 29, is as illogical as hating your own flesh, as as self-flagellation or depriving yourself of food. He's reminding us that the husband is not to think of himself apart from his wife, but is to love her as his own body. Verse 33, to love her as himself. Which means the husband's authority then is not to be used to please himself, but to serve her interests and needs. He's not to use it selfishly to get his own way on matters of mere preference. I'm the head of this house, so I get to hold the remote. I get to choose where we go. He uses his authority to serve, even as Christ does the church, who loved her and gave himself up for her. so husbands, the question of Ephesians 5 this morning is is how are you doing on that? How are you doing on loving and serving your wife? Not using your authority to please yourself, but rather to serve and please her. And minimizing her suffering by laying down your life for her and maximizing yours. And wearing not a crown of glory, but a crown of thorns. Christopher Ash reminds us that it would be wise for husbands at every, every stage of married life to do a kind of, of crucifixion audit on the way he's behaving, measuring up the way that he actually treats his wife against the way that Christ did the church when he went to the cross for her. That's what God is calling you to in his word. As the larger catechism says, to express love and tenderness to her, to love, pray for, and bless her. Even to instruct and counsel her, which Paul gets at in verse 26 when he points out that Christ, in dying for his bride, ultimately did so to sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. And so part of the husband's responsibility in loving and leading his wife is to lead her more and more into Christ's likeness. To seek, above all else, her growth in Grace that she might be made holy, verse 27, by virtue of the word with which he washes her. Even as Christ washes the church with the water of the word, so husbands have a duty before God to lead their wives in the word. Which means, first of all, to to study yourself so that you might be able to then lead them in this way. And then to actually lead them in this way, to to lead in, in family worship, to pray for them. To serve them in such a way that they have time and opportunity to study the word themselves. And then to bring them to that place where where the means of grace are ministered publicly and seek to help them get the maximum benefit from those means, sitting humbly beneath it with her. This is your duty before God, to beautify her by the word of Christ to pray for her sanctification, to lead her in the word, both privately and publicly, as one pastor said, to help her become her future glory self. That's what Christ does the church in verse 27. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives. And Paul calls you to serve them self-sacrificially. He calls you to wash them with the water of the word and make them holy. And then in verse 29 He calls you to nourish and cherish her as Christ does the church. This idea of of nourishing her includes nourishing her with the word that that we just spoke of. It includes providing for her her material needs. It, It includes making sure that all of her needs are met. And doing this in a context of delight. Cherishing her. He says, treasuring her, even as Christ does the church. And, and how does Christ delight in, nourish, and, and cherish his bride? How does Christ treasure his bride? I'll go back again and study the Song of Songs. He assures her of his affection for her despite her imperfection and her doubts he embraces her and showers her with his love he never tires of reminding her of it but says you are altogether beautiful my love there is no flaw in you my sister my bride he treats with absolute purity never objectifying her And even when she sins against him, is gentle toward her and doesn't use his authority in a domineering way, browbeating her because of her sin, but says, you're as beautiful as tears of my love, as lovely as Jerusalem. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines, virgins without number, but you are my dove, my perfect one, the only one. And my desire is for you. So much so that he went to the cross, leaping over mountains, leaving heaven to seek a bride who was not worthy of his love in herself, but he makes her worthy. He treasures her, he loves her, he speaks tenderly to her. All of that is in the background of what Paul is here saying about husbands nourishing and cherishing their wives as Christ does the church. To nourish and cherish, those are terms of of, of tenderness and, and, and endearment and affection being drawn from the the biblical motif of Christ as the bridegroom of his people, which is seen most clearly in that greatest of all songs, which is most significantly a song about Christ and his bride. But then it's also a paradigm for us on how to follow Christ's example in wholeheartedly loving and and tenderly caring for our wives, making it a, a delight for them to submit to and follow our lead because we seek not our good but theirs. You see how how Paul says in in verse 32 of our passage that marriage is to be a little picture, a little parable of that ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. It is a a mystery and a profound one at that, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. God here exalts the significance of this relationship, this union of which we speak, that it has the great privilege of picturing the gospel so that a Christian husband, as John Stott says, who even partially fulfills this ideal, preaches the gospel without ever opening his lips as people see in him the quality of love that took Christ to the cross. Lloyd-Jones said there is no greater recommendation to the truth and power of the Christian faith than a Christian husband and wife, Christian marriage, and Christian home. The gospel is put on display in our lives as husbands nourish and cherish their wives, loving them as themselves, even as Christ and the church have become one, laying his life down for her with a Calvary love and a crown of thorns. This, beloved, is is the purpose of Christian marriage to put on display the the gospel to a world who who so needs the love of the bridegroom. And even to model for our, our children the very gospel that we proclaim to them. Elizabeth Elliot said that the greatest good that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. The greatest good that a mother can do for her children is to love their father. Because this kind of, of marital love, by God's design picture, is the very heart of the gospel. Christ laying down his life for his bride to make them one that he might nourish and cherish her for all eternity. Now, the church loving, respecting, and honoring her bridegroom by submitting and devoting herself to him. And so, before we talk in a couple of weeks about the the next part of the fifth commandment and move into Ephesians 6 on on bringing up our children in the nurture and admonition of Christ, let's seek to first ground that in the context of a home where where moms and dads, the way that you treat each other and the way that you think about authority and submission mirrors the actual gospel that you're teaching your children and does not undermine it, it does not preach a false gospel. And insofar as it does, let us repent both horizontally and vertically and seek from Christ our heavenly bridegroom, the very grace that we need to love as he has so loved us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, our heavenly bridegroom, the one who from heaven came and sought us to be his holy bride, With his own blood, he bought us, and for our life, he died. Father, help every husband among us and every future husband to love his wife with this kind of Calvary love, to nourish and cherish them, loving them as his own body. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to do this, and wives for the ways that we have been slow to, to embrace this calling, and so to trust you. Help us, Lord, as parents to to model for our children the very gospel that we teach them. To seek from Christ our ultimate heavenly bridegroom, the grace and faithfulness needed to love our spouse as you have called us to love them. We pray in Jesus' name.